Man, these these crows are freaking me out. Well, whenever if it comes up during the show, I think our audience would love. Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna put my shoes on to uh, get ready. To be ready, yeah. Because um, yeah, this is like the baby. The babies are there uh, with the mother at the edge of the bush, um, and so the crows. I think we'll neither go into the bush or go near the mother. Um, but the crows are definitely like, they come up and they're on the branches and they're, you know, they're watching. They're trying to establish patterns. They're going to, they're getting, they're trying to get be ready for these kittens at a moment of weakness and distraction to swoop down. I, I used to like crows, but now I, I, I see them as monsters. Anyway, that should be the intro of our of the of the podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by saving kittens. I'm your host Charles Boeinger, coming to you from rainy Washington D.C. With me on the line, as always, coming from Istanbul, is my co-host David Will. David, how's it going? Yeah, I, it's going well, Charles, but I actually am, um, my my soul is split in two, uh, watching my garden on this beautiful summer evening, because these kittens uh, that I've been nursing to, to life um, are venturing out into the dangerous world. Uh, you know, I'm like a, I'm like the father of, you know, teenagers or something, watching them exposed to the to the mysteries and dangers of of the wider world except for my case i'm actually watching the crows on top of the branches uh figuring out their moment to strike so i'm on tenterhooks here between you know torn between my love of our uh you know our friendship and my sense of protectiveness of these kittens well, let's just let that be a quick little notice for everyone listening that there may be a point when you hear David spring from his desk and run to rescue the little kittens. Uh, if that happens, I may or may not edit the pause out simply because I want all of you to sit there in just tense excitement over what's going to happen until David gets back and tells us <laughs> if he rescued the kittens. Because... That is it's the like right... a 1920s melodrama. Yes, well, you know, welcome to Nightmare Inn. <laughs> it's, well, it's just because saving the kittens is the right and moral thing to do. Which brings us to today's topic. Or is it? Oh, well, that's true. We won't know that until the end of the show, which means you can't go save the kittens until we're finished with the discussion. <laughs> yeah, which sure. means that if bad things happen, it's all for the good of the show. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, before I was so rudely interrupted, which is, again, the wrong thing to do, today's show is talking about morality. We're going to discuss, just briefly try to define it, and then talk about some of its applications in our broader culture when the term is used, perhaps in places where it should not be, and where people have um, not been pondering moral issues uh, rigorously enough. Um, and we're going to start, of course as I just said, with having to define what we mean when we say morality. And I have intended to do something here 
that will explode the minds of every philosophy major listening with incoherent rage. I do consider that to be a benefit, by the way. Um, and that is that we're going to give a little short shrift to the defining it part, simply because that is its own black hole that could t consume the entire episode without us ever actually accomplishing anything. And to a certain extent, even if we're being imprecise for practical purposes, um, we'll come up with something good enough. And I think it's the rest of the discussion that's really going to be the interesting part. Hopefully. Well, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, hopefully there's something interesting. Exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, when you look up, it's, it's, there's nothing more trite and boring than reading a dictionary definition of a <laughs> word or term before you talk about it. Uh, but I had to at least look at the dictionary definitions of moral and morality. And um, it was just as unhelpful as I assumed it would be um, in that the definitions just say, oh, rules of conduct, distinction between right and wrong, ethical. Um, and uh, yeah, just all of that references to right conduct without really being able to explain that either. And then it's interesting that the definitions for moral and morality will always randomly throw in virtuous and sexual matters. Chase. Hmm. Hmm. And that, of course, is um, one of the things that I do want to talk about because I think uh, sexual matters are one of the, the issues where uh, morality is most often incorrectly invoked. Um, because when we say morality, we, we are often um, talking about, as it says, issues of right and wrong. And how do we come up with what's right? How do we come up with what's wrong? Which things should be considered right or wrong? Um, I really have issues with the way a lot of people start their discussion of morality. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, um, so based on the, so responding to the last thing you said, um, there is a, Tenet that I, I may have mentioned this uh, in a previous discussion, but there's a uh, thinker in Pakistan who attempted actually at the behest of the then government to um, reinterpret Islamic doctrine to bring a kind of modernism and um, accommodation to changing social and technological realities uh, and to reinterpret the, the, the doctrine in theology to say, you know, these things are not, as you may think, impermissible, because if you think harder about what these texts are teaching us, then we can see an underlying truth about the nature of morality within the context of Islam that allows us to live in this world that is very different from the world of the uh, 7th century. And so this concept of Islamic modernism was, was based on the distinction between uh, acts, you know, in a list of permissible and impermissible acts, and then basically taking the derivative of that to say, what is the unifying principle of what makes these things that are impermissible, impermissible, and what makes these things that are permissible, permissible. Wouldn't that be integrating it, though? Uh, you know, I think of that as the derivative mm -hmm. to see. 
I think you're changing. integrating it because you're taking the principle and you're sort of stepping up with it, which requires you to see more things. It's like what, because those principles are what's derived from it. Therefore, they're the derivative of the higher principle. So when you go from the derivative to the other thing, you have to integrate. Well, uh, I mean, derivative is when you're looking for the, you know, change in velocity, those sorts of things. Um, the inter integral is when you're looking for volume. That's basically all I remember of calculus in high school, which I did not take any further in college. Uh, that was the the sort of sense of weight and volume being associated with integrals and rates and um, well, that's sort of, but yeah. the other important rates thing to bear in mind is that being... because we are not moral relativists, we believe that <laughs> morality is constant. And what do you get when you integrate? A constant. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, that interruption gave absolutely say, no value to anyone, yeah, but was, I couldn't not great, say that it. That was a great interruption, Charles. Thank you for that. Um, although it did, because you brought us back to high school, uh, or at least me back to high school, you might have taken calc in, in college. I, I remember distinctly. I took it in both. Geography. Took... Oh, well, excuse me. Anyway. Yes. The, the, Different uh, levels of calculus. Yeah, I was in the BC calculus no, I wasn't, class I wasn't in junior year. I took calculus like that I took calculus before you did. That obviously was not my. Or I, I would hope that that was not. That, that was obviously not my implication. However, anyway, in high school, the I remember distinctly, and I was going to bring up for this discussion, the um, or the geography instructor, Mr. Swenson, at one point, uh, in response to something I said, said, so are you telling me you're some kind of moral relativist? <laughs> at the time, I was like, well, obviously, yes, because, okay, stealing is wrong. But if you have to break a window in the middle of a, you know, natural emergency to grab a can of soup to feed your kids, sure, it's stealing, but it's clearly not wrong. You know, that's moral. If, if that's what you're calling moral relativism, then yeah, I'm a moral relativist. Anyway, heading back to um, what I was talking about, Fazlur Rahman, um, the, you know, the idea was... Um, you know, these, these ancient texts give us lists of behaviors. They don't give us a lot of abstract justifications. Um, they give us things that need to be interpreted to begin with. And so the question is, how do we interpret them? And does it mean, you know, you have to wear your pants three inches above your ankle? Or does it mean something more abstract about dressing modestly, whatever that means in the society that you're in, in the time and place you happen to be, uh, does it mean hygiene, you know, does hygiene mean specifically putting water into your nostrils three times, or does it mean keeping abreast with the scientific sense of disease vectors and various uh, other sources of what, you know, what it means to keep yourself healthy and adhering to those. So in that sense, you know, what is, what is the actual message of the religious text? And, um, so that was what he devoted his life to before, um, political reaction forced him to leave the country. Oh.
Though, as always, there's a happy ending when it comes to studying the Middle East and South Asia. Yes. I mean, when we talk about what is a source of morality, where do we get our ideas of morality from, religion is one of the ones that I find the least satisfying because, as you've just said, people tend to take any rule that's in a religious text and assume that because it's a rule in a religious text, it is morality, as opposed to what most of them seem to be, which are um, just very specific rules, not that they're right or right or wrong in a moral sense, that it makes you a good or bad person for doing it, that you're harming others by doing it, but that um, you, you just have these rules. And some people say that, well, because it's a rule from God, it is morality, as opposed to just a specific thing that God wants us to do. And even if the rule itself is not moral or immoral, the fact that God wants you to do it means that violating what God wants makes you immoral. Right. And the, you know, the fact that there is this list makes you, you know, makes the person who says, um, well, it's just, it has to be interpreted. We have to interpret this relative to the world we actually live in. It just forces that person to do more work and that extra work, um, redounds to the benefit of both, you know, sort of radical atheists who say, why are you doing this work and bending over backwards? There's clearly no value to the original text. You're just making up this link between um, the sets of behaviors you're actually advocating for and the specific, you know, uh, instructions that are in this ancient text, but also to the, um, religious radicals who read the text and say, okay, I will do exactly this. And of course they don't understand. You know, some of them may understand that they are also interpreting, um, but they are perhaps correct that they are doing that. They're, they're, they're interpreting. Um, they're just sort of doing a minimum of interpreting because if it says, you know, you can't wear the, this mix of fabrics and you, you know, cannot do this to a member of the opposite sex, or you must do this to be a member of the opposite sex in this circumstance, you know, then they just follow that. And it's, it's easier for them. Um, so yeah, obviously I, I, I would agree that religion is a tricky guide, but at the same time, it's not, you know, people do do that work uh, of interpreting. And, you know, uh, reinvigorating these ancient texts to make them relevant in the current day. And so I don't think it's, um, you yeah, know, I don't, I don't think that religion as a source of moral principles is necessarily that dissatisfying. It just depends on which religion and which moral principles. Right. Well, so for me, when I think about where should morality come from, how do we derive it, as you would say, um, <laughs> I, I feel very bad now that um, our listeners can't don't have the video of this where David just gave us a bit of a spit take as I said that. Yeah, I almost I almost spat my coffee on my <laughs> keyboard. Well, I'm glad you didn't because the show must go on. The show must uh, go on, even if it must be bogged down in, in side conversations and, yes. and jokes um well that, that's what the people come here for really we're <laughs> yeah, trying probably. to subliminally inject them with a little bit of moral discussion while they're here mm -hmm. uh, 
But anyway, I I think, I mean, my take on morality is that we as humans have the ability to, um, as this show has said from the beginning, we're not going to get you to a perfect view of everything we're talking about. But our goal as people who are intellectually curious is to keep trying to get closer and closer to a correct view. You know, you know it, we're not going to hit perfection, but we're going to constantly be striving to get near it as close as we can. And with morality, I think it's something similar. Uh, we as human beings will never have a perfect system of codes of conduct of right and wrong, but we can ourselves sit around and look at the society that we're in and the context of the moment and say, okay, here are the rules that we think are important lasting principles. And to my mind, religion is counterproductive for that because religions, religions, um, religious morals uh, tend to, not always, but tends to um, take that agency of moral debate away from you. And instead of being this thing that we spend thousands of years discussing, when is it acceptable to lie? When is it acceptable to steal bread to feed someone who's starving? Those, all, of, all of those very fascinating, very intricate discussions that philosophers have pondered for, for millennia suddenly gets boiled down to, well, this book says you can't, so you can't. And you've mentioned how some people will try to go through the religious text and um, you know, come up with a different rules from there. But to my mind, what they're often doing there is an unnecessary step simply because they feel bound by the religious text. When if you can go through and come up with a better system or interpret it to a better way, you didn't need the book in the first place. You just you just feel bound by what the book says, and you're trying to turn that into the set of codes of conduct you already think is going to be better. Yeah, so I at one level agree with that um and <clears throat> that is um the argument that someone like Sam Harris would make about religion that you in fact are i mean if you're doing the work of this uh sort of well you know well-intentioned um modernizing interpreter of religion uh in that work of interpreting you are working with you know, the religious text in one hand and your rubric of morality in the other hand, and you're translating from the one into the other. And he says, well, if you've got the rubric of morality that is allowing you to translate the old text, just throw away the old text and go with your rubric of, of morality, which, you know, these days could come about from uh, the, ty the types of um, scholarly, you know, and popularized debates um, of moral philosophers. Uh, but I would, again, push back uh, in defense of religion, as insane to me as it is that those words are coming out of my mouth, that um, to say that what really matters here is a tradition and people taking the tradition seriously and arguing within it. Um, so that tradition can be a tradition of moral philosophy because we have the benefit now of the accumulated knowledge of, uh, of millennia and, and more specifically of, you know, the post enlightenment explosion of, um, of, you know, of wisdom that we take for granted, uh, which enriches our lives. And so these questions of 
you know, the, the, the contrast between <clears throat> freedom and duty and, uh, positive and negative freedom and, uh, all these things, all these intricate questions that thinkers have teased out for us, uh, to refer to, you know, if that's your tradition, that's great. But religions also offer traditions. And the problem with fundamentalists is that they're ignorant and they think they know something and they don't. Um, and they have the book in front of them and they don't understand what more intelligent, more erudite people have said about that book that is in front of them uh, for centuries or in the case of Christianity, millennia. Um, or, you know, I'm sure it's also the case of uh, uh, Eastern religions that have even older uh, scholarly traditions. I'm just not, uh, you know, aware of of those. And um, of course, given, you know, how the last few centuries have gone, I'm sure that a lot of the people in those societies are also not aware of those scholarly traditions, uh, for better or worse. But the point is that, um, you know, the problem of fundamentalism is a problem of, you know, it's the Alexander Pope problem of a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, which gets turned into like a motivational poster where people think like, oh yeah, I have a BA, you know, I took a, I took an intro to a calculus class. I know everything about math. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, I really do find it problematic when people uh, do things like that. <laughs> exactly. No, but the point, you know, but the point is that, um, yeah, you take a, you take a course on anything and you think you know it and you really don't have the beginning of not, of wisdom. You have no idea what is out there. It is incredibly difficult to actually understand anything. And the impulse to think that you understand the, uh, I believe, you know, this is getting banded about these days as the Dunning Kruger effect. Yes. Um, you Which know, it's, it's, it's extremely strong. Allow any of our audience members who don't know, Dunning Kruger is when your incompetence with a subject masks your ability to see that incompetence. So you don't realize you're incompetent because you're so incompetent that you don't see you're doing it wrong. Which is why I, I believe the best uh, term for Bitcoin mm. is Dunning Krugerans. Krugerans. I yeah. saw where that was going. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. So, um, in any case, uh, the issue here is that, you know, fundamentalists of whatever religious stripe, be they, you know, in the 1920s, um, you know, William Jennings Bryan talking about evolution or, um, you know, 2015, um, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, these people ignore the scholarly tradition that would otherwise bind them. Um, and they think they know something that they don't. Um, of course, scholarly traditions aren't all always helpful, but um, there is this, you know, there is a benefit to the individual having a certain amount of humility and a certain awareness that other smarter people and more, and more educated people have approached these problems and may have better answers than the individual is able to come up with on uh, his or her own. 
Um, and so when it comes to interpreting texts, yeah, I was actually going to say, I mean, the, the, zooming back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, if you said, what is morality, right? Um, if I may. Uh, you may. <laughs> so I want some... So I, I would like to introduce three concepts. One is the Lex you may introduce Talonis. <laughs> well, I actually only need to introduce two. Oh, okay, I good. Introduce, I will introduce three. The Lex Talonis. You know, morality is uh, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. So if I may reinterpret that, <clears throat> do unto others as they did unto you. Then you have um, the whole tor Torah on one leg. You know, the story that the, the Gentile went to the to Rabbi Hillel and said, you know, I want you to explain the Torah to me while I stand, for, you know, the length of time I can stand on one leg. And the response was, uh, do not do to your neighbor that which is repulsive to you. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Um, and then the guy was gobsmacked and fell down, presumably, because it's such a good definition. And what's interesting was I, I saw that some years ago, in contrast, or, or um, excuse me, I saw that in a discussion of the golden rule shown as expressing the same idea as the, uh, the principle from Jesus of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But these are actually different. They're, they're mostly the same, you know, and I think that principle, you know, if you call it the golden rule and it's like, and you think of it as the Kant, Kantian categorical imperative, there is a, a, a basic similarity, but I actually am, you know, over, over the last few years, I've been kind of leaning back on my like childhood Sunday school sense of association with Christianity. Um, and thinking more about these principles and these and these terms and these phrases that, you know, were imprinted into the soft wax of my child brain, because there's a difference between do not do the thing that is repulsive to you to anyone else, and that thing that you would want done to you, go out, do that to your neighbor. And... Um, I'm not saying one is actually better than the other. In fact, these these track quite closely to positive and negative freedom. Um, but I uh, I am drawn to the affective um, world that is described by the Christian imperative to go out and love your neighbor, as opposed to the Talmudic wisdom of you know live and let live. Um, and I think that, you know, there, it could be simply that the heritage of the past has given us this language that for better or worse, people find evocative. Some people find evocative. Um, that might be the only reason to take it seriously at all, but, um, that's plenty good reason for me at this point in my life hmm. because, because those do, you know. Those are two phrases that are very, that are quite short and concise that have a weight of scholarly tradition and communal significance behind them 
that can be interpreted um, by, you know, by a lay person in my case, but in a way that clarifies, I think, relatively important questions and provide, um, you know, paths ahead for people when asking the question of what is it, what does it mean to be a moral person? So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of coming around to religion. I might, I might pull a Ross Douthat and convert myself to Catholicism at some point. Is that how Ross Douthat came to Catholicism? Oh, I, I don't know how. Uh, uh, I didn't know his backstory. It, I just knew he, that his solution to everything is more Christianity. And if we just right. didn't have the sexual revolution and followed the Catholic Church's wishes prior to Pope Francis, then we'd all be great. But he's a convert. He's not. He wasn't born Catholic. I didn't. Well, nobody's born Catholic. <laughs> Uh, he wasn't raised Catholic. Either. Okay. Yeah. Everyone is actually born Muslim because well, uh, yes. children are without sin and therefore they are Muslims. Oh, that's yeah. very different than the Christian concept where we are born with sin. Right. Well, there you go. Um, there you go. So I would, so a, a, a thought that I have had on the golden rule, you know, obviously that will, it'll cover, you know, maybe 90% of morality that you need in certain circumstances. But, um, Obviously, there are things that are a little off about it insofar as, um, you know, there could be things that you enjoy that other people do not enjoy. And doing it to other people just because you would have liked to have it done unto you when it makes them incredibly miserable is not is not moral. Now, that's just that's indeed, almost indeed. quibbling to a certain extent, because I think almost anybody who's trying to follow the golden rule would would not fall into a trap um, regarding that where they're like, well, you know, I'm a masochist and I love it when people run up and randomly smack me on the head. Nobody, people aren't really going to think, well, I would like that done. So, no, but then again, there are I mean, many this is, and this that. is the problem. It's a, but it, it, uh, this is why I said that I am not saying that one came after the, the other and is therefore better. Right. Um, I'm not saying, you know, that's what I was exposed to in Sunday school and therefore it's better. It is, in fact, as you said, you know, these are two different views of the world and one of them is potentially, I mean, one of them is dangerous in a way that we know from history because the inquisitors who said, you know, I am showing you love because I am saving your soul. I am doing everything I can to save your soul, including torturing you to death. <laughs> like that is disgusting, obviously. Um, but it can be justified by that quote that I, you know, that I gave, um, but, you know, by contrast, um, the other one can, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, view of, uh, of negative liberty can go into Ayn Rand libertarian, you know, callous dystopias that, uh, that also need no. And, and even just on a less extreme example, um, a lot of guys who do cat calls at women, when people are like, well, how would you feel if, if women started calling out at you like that? And the guys go, I'd love it. Um, right. Of course, part of that is because those guys have no experience with it. And if it happened to them on a regular basis, they'd get sick of it. Right, um, indeed. But um, but that's a, one of those things where on a, on a smaller daily basis that, that could come up. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons your example of the Inquisitor is part of the reason that I'm anti-death penalty. Because people always say, oh, well, but what about the people who've done something so horrible you absolutely have to kill them? And I think, well... When we see ISIS videos of them beheading people, um, and they say they're executing people for being you know, blasphemers or heathens or whatever it is their excuse is, 
and we they would say, well, blasphemy is the absolute worst sin. That's right. worse than murder. And so you end up in the situation where once you allow for the mistreatment of prisoners and and killing them by something you consider strong enough to be justified, well, someone's going to go out there and take a much stupider view of what's justified. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And, um, you know, if you're talking about the death penalty in the United States and the death penalty in the Islamic State, um, you know, going down the path of that comparison could lead to certain, you know, a certain set of things. Um, if you think about a debate, you know, about the death penalty within the United States, then um, it is potentially more fruitful to realize that um, state power is so vast and terrible that every protection that citizens have against that state power must be treasured and protected. And that was the, again, speaking of the derivative principles of the lists that we are given, um, that's the principle of the constitution. You know, the creation of a, of a state <clears throat> that is divided against itself so that the little people within it may thrive free of the oppressive power of an undivided, untrammeled Leviathan. Um, and so every instance of people saying, you know, oh, well, if we, you know, look at the way we treat these people, then we should treat those people even worse. Like every instance of the Lex Talonis being applied to, you know, contemporary American society um, I say, no, no, no. Look at how unjustly we treat these people. Let's take apart these tools of state power that allow people to be treated so unjustly. You know, not, oh, let's seize the power, you know, seize power within the, straight, the state to turn its uh, vicious might against our enemies. And um, that's just because I'm a, central, you know, centri centrist, liberal, corporate shill who doesn't believe in anything. Right. Well, and, I mean, that's yeah. on the, the note of prisoners and how we treat them. You know, I more than just being anti-death penalty, I for me that uh, that arises from a principle, a moral principle that I have that I think is important, which is that you do not mistreat your prisoners. And in this situation, I'm referring to um, John people. Well, I'm thinking of people who are completely under your control. So, you know, it's different to say that, well, there's this there's this guy who's on the so loose. You're talking about Paul Ryan. Well, yeah, or for people or who do have, for people who are vertebrates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you're right, yes. Uh, which right. most humans are, most. Um, yeah. The, uh, yeah, it's um, harder to be tortured when you are capable of bending into any In any direction, position. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, when, I, when I talk about you shouldn't mistreat your prisoners, in part, it's that that scale that people tend to go down. I mean, we, we were familiar with things like the Stanford prison experiment, where you right. give people the power to mistreat people who are completely under their power. And they have a tendency to do that. Uh, and right. and uh, one thing that I think 
something that I think is is immoral and which comes up fairly frequently is when people start to dehumanize themselves, not just their their captives, by the way that they give in to their negative emotions when it comes to, well, this person did something really bad, so I'm going to see to it that he's, you know, that, 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 I, that I hurt him, that I make his life yeah. unpleasant and miserable while he's here in this prison. We need a moral principle that says that that's not acceptable. And when I say people are completely under your control, by the way, what I mean by that is um, that the standard is going to be different if you have them in a prison where they really are completely under your control and not some situation where, like, you're a police officer who's just apprehended a gunman fleeing from, like, a murder scene. Right. You know, you, you, if you have to be a bit you, – you might have to be rougher in that situation. Um, although, right. as we've also seen on instances that are much less severe than that, the police will use excessive force. Um, right. But my point is, um, if you really pause and think about it, do you need to mistreat your prisoners? Does that have to happen? Do you have to make prison a place where you can watch one group of prisoners walk over to another prisoner and, and beat him up, knocking his teeth out and leaving blood all over the place? Does that have to be a thing that we do, that these are all such vile people that they deserve to be treated like this? I think a lot of the most awful things that happen in history start with somebody saying, well, they deserve it. Right. Because everybody's conception of what is a foul thing that deserves something worse I mean, in 1930s Germany, they would say, well, the Jews deserve it because they've been undermining our society. And yeah. and and right now in the Middle East, you got people who say, well, blasphemers deserve it or or the Americans deserve it because they occupied this country or because of some crazy conspiracy theory that they have over there. And it right. would be better if we just took a view that we didn't treat people like that, even if we think that they deserve it. Um and one of the principles that I've sort of adopted for myself is, um, in general, the kind of person I want to hang out with, the kind of person I want in my life, is the kind of person who has a higher standard for himself or herself than they do for others. Because all of the like, sort of the yeah. worst people that you know, the people that are the most unpleasant to know that do the worst things, are all people whose standard of behavior is higher for other people. If you look at the Trump administration right now, I mean, Trump is a walking example of what I mean by this. Yeah. We have this thing where um, well, we, I mean, we spent Trump, half a week talking about smoky eye as an insult when it wasn't. And then right. they go they go around and say, oh, well, McCain will be dead soon anyway, so who cares what he thinks? And which of those did they give the outrage to? Right, well, and, and Madam Smoky Eye herself said, you know, the fact that someone leaked this is disgusting. Right, that that's <laughs> like, the bigger problem okay, that it was said. That's your problem, exactly. The leaking is right. disgusting. And with Trump itself. himself, when you when you look at how mad he gets, there have been a couple of instances where journalists have um, rushed to say something. Well, not even necessarily rushed, but they, they said something and they hadn't been able to verify it enough. One example, which, which comes up a lot because of things like Twitter and blogs now, that a journalist might say something that is not a full piece. It might just be a blog post or something or a tweet. Yeah. There were instances with somebody who said, oh, they took this bust of Martin Luther King out of the Oval Office. Um, and then it turned out that, that they just moved it to another place. They hadn't gotten rid of it. And then there was um, somebody at a Christmas lighting ceremony where they said, oh, look at this picture of how few people are here. But it turned out that that picture was dated a little later, earlier than they thought it was, and more people showed up later. And Trump just goes ballistic when all of this stuff happens. 
crying them out as being fake news and all of these things, even though in all of those instances they issued corrections. Trump right. himself will just go off and say things without any attempt at fact check. He himself proudly told that story about meeting with Justin Trudeau and, and complaining about the trade deficit when he even openly admitted when he said this, he had no idea what the deficit was. He just started a, a, a claiming that there was one. Yeah. And he made no effort to correct that at any point. And so you see with him that his standard for how everybody has to treat him is very different from the standard for how he treats yep. other people. And I think that that's kind of at the basis of a lot of the most immoral and unacceptable behavior. Yeah, or to uh, lean on the religious tradition that I find so valuable these days. Uh, it is better to, and this is actually not the direct quote, um, but the the principle of taking out the moat in your own eye before you comment on the, or excuse me, taking out the, um, you know, the timber in your, the, the beam in your own eye before you comment on the moat in someone else's eye, you know, that other, that everyone has a bias. Everyone is looking at the world, um, in a flawed way, but your responsibility is to perfect your own, uh, actions before you comment on the actions of other people. And yeah, again, whether you, um, you know, whether you, uh, whether one is allergic to religious language and, um, invoking it makes communication harder or whether you, uh, you know, like that, uh, the resonance of those phrases and, um, and invoking it makes communication easier. Yeah. That principle is a really valuable one that I, I agree with. And particularly since yeah, we are all individuals, I mean, we don't actually, you know, think as, um, I mean, at the, uh, as much as we lean on each other to communicate and share ideas and workshop and come to, you know, new understandings together, at the end of the day, we are in our own heads. And so it is just intuitively obvious to me that um, as a matter of sort of an agenda for life, uh, the self-reliance and self uh, awareness and individual responsibility would be at the, at the core of moral action. Right. And that's part of my problem with some of religious morality, because um, as we sort of discussed a bit earlier, there are people who see the words written down in the book and the fundamentalists, especially who see that written down and assume that they know what that means without having to talk to anybody else, without having to think about it. And my view is that morality cannot be arbitrary. Something can't be or not be a moral principle simply because. You can't just declare it. You have to be able to back it up with something, as philosophers have been doing for thousands of years. And so part of my concern is this is where, as I've gone on this rant before on the show, um, I think that the issue of homosexuality is completely tangential to the concept of morality because – I, I can't re I can't find and have not heard any remotely acceptable arguments for why homosexuality is implicated with morality, because what is it that makes whether you engage in similar acts with a man or a woman, what makes that right or wrong? And usually it comes back to, well, um, the Bible says it's wrong and God doesn't want it and he called it an abomination. And part of, again, with religious morality, one of my concerns is when you start thinking like that, 
are you saying that morality is simply whatever God happens to like or dislike? Does that mean that if he enjoys, you know, if, if he enjoys uh, Cheers more than Frasier, that it's immoral to watch Cheers <laughs> because he just happens not to like Frasier? That any particular food he just happens not to like suddenly becomes, like, <clears throat> I mean, I hate cilantro. I'm not going to say it's immoral for other people to eat cilantro, even though other people eating cilantro occasionally results in me having to find some in my food, which tastes like soap to me. Right. Um, but I, I don't feel that morality can be arbitrary. I think you have to be able to justify it with something other than God wants or doesn't want it. I don't think right. that if, – if, if, because well, if God wants a thing or doesn't want the thing, and you think that that's important because it's God and you'll go to heaven or hell based on that or just because you want to please God, that's fine. But that makes it a religious rule, not a moral rule. It's just – it's a rule. It's not morality. It's it's right. it's It's not that dissimilar from – you know, it just any other arbit completely arbitrary or random rule somebody might come up with, like which day of the week you're allowed to eat fish on. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Or which day of the week you have to, you know, turn off your cell phone. Right. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's good. I, David Hume, uh, my favorite David. Uh, really? Had a great kind of great distinction uh, on the on this topic that I had to look up to make sure I got it right just now, but the distinction between um, customs and traditions of morality being artificial, mm -hmm. which they are because we make them up to some extent and they change. Um, so, it, you know, it's an artificial distinction as to whether you rest on Friday, Saturday or Sunday. Um, but to not confuse that artificiality with arbitrariness. And so you were using the word arbitrary and he uses that in the same way, but this, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is the distinction that he makes between right. a thing being artificial, which is to say, we just choose, you know, we just, we just say, you know, which one it is and, and arbitrary because it's not arbitrary to have a concept of the Sabbath. Absolutely. You know, it is important to recognize that we get overwhelmed and we need to rest. Um, especially because, there is so much pressure and hierarchy and inequality yeah. in society. A, a and, day for you know, pause and gratitude and reflection is incredibly important. And there's no day of the week that wouldn't be arbitrary. Like whether exactly. you said it Sunday through Saturday. Given I mean, that the concept of the week is arbitrary. It, indeed it is. Or excuse me, is artificial. It is not arbitrary, right. but it is artificial. Um, you know, because you have to organize time in some way. Right. So it's not arbitrary. Uh, again, this is the whatever. I, don't, I mean, I don't want to quibble about words, but, right. you know, it's it's artificial in the sense that we but I think people get the concept. Uh, establish it as a matter of artifact. It is an artifact in that sense. We create it. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a day to some extent. Um, but, you know there is this rotation of the earth, which meet, which matters for us. And that's why we, it's not completely arbitrary, but, but we do create it anyway. Uh, that's why I love David Hume. He blew my mind way open when I read him in directed studies. Good. Yeah. I always regret having not taken directed studies. And I must confess, I've never sat down and really grappled with David Hume, which I should you know, do at some point. That's I mean, this goes back to, uh, what I was saying about traditions. It 
is hard to motivate yourself to read something like that. Right. And But sometimes uh, a lot of things that are hard to read, and I learned this as a child when I found a complete works of Shakespeare in our basement, and I thought, oh, Shakespeare is the thing that smart people read. I was, <laughs> I was, I was a middle schooler at this point. It's right. what, it's what uh, or maybe even a grade schooler. Uh, this is what smart people read. I'm going to open this up, and I'm going to read it. And you start with Henry VI, Part 1, which is possibly his single worst work. Um, and it's completely unannotated. It's just those, those like, there's like two columns of just walls of text. None of it makes any sense. Um, you need to know so much history just for any of it to happen. And it, you, I just slogged all the way through. I got to the end of the play, which took forever. And I said, okay, I'm not reading any more of this. Um, (laughs) and you know, years later I would come back and I, I still don't like Henry the Sixth Part One, but Henry the Sixth Part Three, I absolutely adore. Um, a lot of shit. That's like when the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out and all my friends were like, oh, we have to read the books again or, you know, for the first time. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure, why not? And I was a freshman or sophomore in high school. And so I start reading the first book and I get through like a hundred pages and we're still in the Shire. And I'm like, this is unbelievably boring. This is not good. By contrast, I had already read the Game of Thrones, the mm. first three books of the Game of Thrones at this point. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need any of this Lord of the Rings nonsense. And then I went and saw the movie. And I was like, wait a second. The first 100 pages is the first, like, 15 minutes of the movie. Right. That's <laughs> and, then, and then they're off. And, and literally, the end of the, like, I had finished a chapter. The next chapter was they go to Bree and they have the ring wraiths and all that stuff. So right. it's like, I had almost that's, the that's same... why you have to push yourself. I had almost the same story with Lord of the Rings. In fact, I was about to bring that that one up as my example too, because um, I had read it back in middle school. But um, I read the I actually read The Hobbit um, and enjoyed it, and then I read Fellowship of the Ring, and I read Fellowship of the Ring in a single day, not because I right. was gripped by it, but because I pressed myself through it, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. And then I just got stuck in the Two Towers, which took forever, and I just didn't care for it. And then I ended up finishing it in a little cottage in England, in the countryside, when my family took a vacation there. Um, and the second half of Two Towers, I just loved. Right. And then um, <clears throat> I, and then when I, I, Return of the King had some stuff that I slogged through too, but when I finally finished it, I enjoyed it. And uh, what I noticed after I finished the book, and this was exacerbated even more once the movies came out, what I realized after I finished it was that the process of getting through the book the first time was not that pleasant. But I loved going back and rereading certain sections of it. Um, it's one of those things where um, there's a lot to appreciate, but if your goal is to press yourself to the end, you're not going to be appreciating it because you're supposed to stop and savor individual moments where Tolkien has used language very well or when he has point. a reference to a concept. Yeah, that's an interesting point. However, I, I did want to say this, this concept of you know, pushing oneself uh, somehow I would say has to be at the core of a sense of, of morality is the realization that you as the imperfect individual are must strive constantly, you know, and, um, and uncomfortably to, to be a good person, you know, that it does not come easily because what comes easily is and actually we could have spent a, a whole significant part of our conversation on um, evolutionary psychology because it's a very powerful and important concept um, or series of uh, 
debates, I guess is a better way of characterizing it for the purposes of our discussion, because um, we do in fact have bodies with DNA that pre-programs us to approach the world in certain predictable ways. Um, and those, uh, those tendencies allow the whole range of behavior that we exhibit as human beings. And, uh, so it's very difficult to have precise conversations about these things. And I will not attempt to right now because I am certainly no expert. Um, but, you know, understanding what these tendencies are, how they are triggered and under what circumstances and how those tendencies lead us to do things that we, th and distinguishing first and foremost, distinguishing between those tendencies and what we subsequently identify as moral and immoral behavior. Right. Um, because the capacity for mercy and the capacity for vindictiveness are both within those, you know, that, that sort of that, you know, that set of, uh, prepackaged behaviors. Uh, and fortunately the capacity to develop abstract thought and think rationally and logically is also somehow, um, part of our evolutionary heritage. Um, but these are all distinct in some way. And we have to acknowledge that, you, you know, the, you know, the mammalian, uh, heritage that, that allows me to look at these kittens and think, nurture the small thing, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that's something that I, that I want to encourage in myself, uh, somehow while whatever it is that see that allows me to see the crow as as a threat and to have a certain you know a little sort of jolt of adrenaline and heightened awareness is also potentially a good thing in certain contexts but you know any sense of like um you know mean crow i don't like the crow i will destroy all crows <laughs> you know that 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 impulse uh is one to be right to be worked against. And so again, the sense of, um, yeah, to, to the extent that I would add anything to the golden rule, it would be something along those lines of, um, you know, being aware of how much of how incredibly hard it is to, um, force yourself to do what is right. Right. And speaking of those biological impulses and evolutionary psychology, I mean, it's no surprise that sex comes in for morality a lot. That's right. one of the yep. most basic of those desires. And um, part of what we're, we're running short on time here, but I just want to note because I can't not mention this. When I've talked about things like homosexuality as um, an issue that I think is tangential to morality, I'm not being you know, a libertine who just says go out and do whatever you want sexually. I actually think that sex is an issue where real rigorous morals um, come up all the time and are extremely important to deal with. But the discussions that we have about sexual morality are the wrong ones because we tend to say, well, oh, it's moral if, you know, you're opposite genders and you're over 18 and you consent and you're married. 
you know, and you're not using, and you're using this type of birth control, but not that type of birth control, depending, or no birth control at all, depending on who you are. And even some people would say specific parts of those acts are or are not acceptable. And I think that, um, with the exception of, you know, consent and being 18, which are connected, um, you know, you're asking the wrong, you're asking the wrong questions because moral, sexual morality is so important for things like, well, maybe I got someone to consent, but I emotionally pressured her enough that she'll feel bad about it afterwards. Like that is a huge issue that comes up on a very regular basis in the world. And yep. it's not one of the ones we really talk about. Um, well, fortunately, more and more. Uh, right. Fortunately, more and more we are. About it. Yeah. Um, but that's, a, that's just a note that I thought we had to make sure that we had in the discussion here that I think there's actually a lot of morality involved in sex. I think it's just not the kind we tend to talk about. When we talk about a religious morality concerning sex. I mean, you don't have to go very far to hear about some of the examples of religious people doing uh, with horrific views on what's acceptable sexual conduct when they would talk about, for example, how it wasn't until you know, the 20th century, that places would start to acknowledge that husbands could rape wives. That they'd right. say, well, you know, the only thing that matters for uh, sexual morality is that you're married and you're opposite genders. Well, then when that was the criteria, criteria, then they left off things like consent and assumed yeah. that, well, the wife is presumed to consent because she's married. And that was horrifically immoral, but it right. followed what Absolutely. the religious rules were telling them. Yeah, well... Yeah, right. I mean, well, what they interpret distinguishing between religion and society, you know, and law um, can be difficult to some extent. But um, but absolutely. The, the, going back to our earlier point that there's this there a clear distinction between what the religion said was correct and what we would reason is, in fact, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And along these lines, I mean, this is actually to the extent that we're um, getting into the end of the show, um, this might be too much of a minefield to, to bring up, but, you know, distinguishing between what we can identify as a tendency and, you know, a tendency of people to do or certain groups to do or, uh, you know, men or women to do, distinguishing between tendencies and, um, morality, you know, between that and what we agree as a society is actually right or wrong, um, is, uh, you know, is crucially important as you, uh, you know, as, as you indicated in the specific examples you gave about consent. Um, and I think it's also important to, um, you know, to again, remember that like, an inclination, you know, a biological inclination to, or I mean, or, or an urge is the better word, uh, you know, to engage in sex doesn't mean that, you know, it's like the presence of an inclination, the presence of an urge doesn't give you a right. You right. know, it doesn't, the fact that you really want to inflict vengeance on some person who is perceived to have done a wrong thing, the fact that you feel it really hard doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. The fact that you really want to have sex with that girl or whatever the object of your fancy is, um, you know, your subjective feeling is meaningless, even if it comes from 
you know, your DNA, even if it is sort of pre-programmed to some extent. Um, and in fact, that is, again, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll um, harp you know, on my own sort of attempt to add to the sort of core uh, manual for, for just behavior, which is to say, again, like, it wouldn't be the right thing if it weren't hard. Right. <laughs> if, it were, um, if it were both easy and personally beneficial and morally correct, it would just be the obvious thing. Right. And so, um, you know, forcing yourself to stop when you really want to have sex, uh, you know, may not be the right thing. It may be just masochism. It may be totally irrelevant if the other party, you know, is uh, capable of consenting and, and fully engaged in consenting. If you're hung up on something and forcing yourself to stop just to stop, that's obviously something other than um, morality, as we would put it. Uh, but, um, you know, reaching for the better, like reaching for the better angel, reaching past your worst impulses for the better angel of your nature um, is, is definitely part of it. And yeah, I mean, I could, I could pull that in directions that would take yeah, us. Well, in we other could, we could do whole other shows ways, on that. But yeah, um, I want to do, so before we go, I do want to uh, make one last statement that I meant to make earlier and did not, which is that while I do not recognize a religious text as being the sole arbiter of morality and what it says in there is not, you know, the absolute truth for how you have to behave. I'm not saying it's useless because you do get to look at it. And as you say, with the, the golden rule, all the rest is commentary on the Talmud. Um, you know, that golden rule is in, in, incredibly helpful. Um, and so if you, you can, what I'm saying is, you know, you go and look at a religious text, a, philosoph a philosophical text, anything, and just know that this gives you some great suggestions but it also gives you some bad suggestions and take the good suggestions and use your own capacity for rational thought to decide which are the ones you're going to embrace. Um, and with that, we'll go to this week's sign off, which is our first ever musical sign off, um, which is going to be David has not heard this yet. David will not hear this until this goes to air because I pre-recorded this. Um, I did it all in one take without bothering to use a pop filter or anything that would make it sound good. My assumption is that by um, being as off-key as possible, I will not violate any copyright. Um, it is a little ditty I've put together called A Browns Fan on Draft Night. See you next week, folks. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty slots on awful rosters. Now my draft is spent and gone. Here they talked of a rebuilding, here it was they'd take the blame, here they talked about the playoffs, but the playoffs never came. From the draft room in Berea, they could see a team reborn, and they rose with voices ringing, and I can hear them now, the very names that they had sung, Justin Gilbert and Tim Couch, Richardson, Brandon Whedon, Manziel, 
Oh, my picks, my picks, forgive me that I play and you are gone. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Phantom talents we can't foster. Phantom coaches shown the door. Empty slots on awful rosters where high picks will play no more. Oh, my picks, my picks, don't ask me what that trading up was for. Empty slots on awful rosters where high picks will play no more.